today I'm pleased to be joined by Ron Abi Astor, who is the Steinwood Professor in School Behavioral Health at the School of Social Work and the Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California. His work examines the role of the physical, social, organizational, and cultural context in schools related to different kinds of bullying and school violence. Uh, Ron is a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Educational Research Association, and the Society for Social Work and Research, and an elected member of the National Academy of Education and the American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare. Ron, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for inviting me, Jeff. It's a great honor to be here. Well, you are doing um, incredibly important work, and I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about the work that's captured in the American Psychological Association Division 15 policy brief on reducing weapons in schools. Yeah, thank you. You know, much of this discussion really started after Parkland when those of us who've been doing this school safety kind of work realized that for so many years we've been talking about school shootings, really about preventing the next shooter and really preventing mass shootings. Um, and particularly my colleague, Rami Vimanishti and myself, when we were looking at the data of California and writing our new book that's published just this last month by Oxford University Press, we realized that you know so much of the national effort to address this topic is focused really about stopping the shooter and protecting the school from the outside shooter. When the youth of this country and for example, the California Healthy Kids Survey in California and other surveys around the country are actually telling us through their voices almost on an annual basis that they have uh, broader issues with weapons and that there's actually wisdom to their voices and their data that they provide us through their voices and their reports every year uh, are somewhat ignored in the research literature, by policymakers, and even in the whole way we think about issues of preventing school shootings. So in our new book, one of the things that we really wanted to focus on is what are the various dimensions that have been missed by policymakers and by our country, and how could we get out of this kind of catch-22 situation where we're always kind of battling with the Second Amendment and the NRA. And for us, uh, again, looking at the data in California, it was really clear to us that students were being exposed to weapons, not just guns, but knives, clubs, a variety of other weapons. They were also threatened with weapons. And again, sometimes they weren't shot and they weren't killed and people around them weren't, but just the mere presence of a firearm or a knife or a gun really made a big difference in how they felt at school. And again, this is not data that we invented. This has been collected by the state for decades now, and uh, very little has been done either at the local, regional, or larger state levels or national levels to look at prevention from that perspective. Uh, there could be a lot of reasons for that, but if we look at how the vast majority of kids are going to be impacted by weapons, this is a good place to start. And we thought maybe looking at a public health approach also from the perspective, not just at the student level, but at the school level. In other words, are there schools that have more of this kind of problem than others? And what can we do actually to, again, get out of this argument with the Second Amendment uh, and really start using the data that we do have to move to a psychological, social work, educational approach uh, that could actually make a dent in this problem? And 
that reminds me of, of one of the many fascinating things that I learned from the brief and from reading your work. And that is that while it's, it's essential that we talk about and respond to school shootings, but there are also some unanticipated negative consequences, consequences of how we typically think and talk about them. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, we do talk about it again in terms of almost record-breaking uh, uh, situation. You know, the school shootings have been around. Probably uh, there's there's some evidence showing that there's been shootings in schools going back to the 1840s or even earlier. You know, we just don't have it recorded. We haven't thought of it as such. You know, when the media started covering this information, our consciousness as a country started growing for us. Kind of the watershed moment was Columbine, but there were shootings both in suburbs and inner city settings until then. But for whatever reason, it seems to me like the media is only really covering it seriously and, and subsequently many researchers too, uh, when it's record breaking and when it's uh, covering lots of deaths, 17 deaths, 20 deaths, more deaths. But there's many situations in which somebody may have just a gun in school and another student knows about it. And that could have a great emotional impact, academic impact, how the student feels about society and school, that people either do something or don't do something about it. A gun could go off and not hit anybody. And that could have a big impact. Or people may hear about it by rumors or see it. So, you know, really talking about it more as a society or as a democratic society, what would we want to do in a society where either people need to bring weapons uh, to school to protect themselves or to if they feel they have to have it to get through the day, uh, so to speak. Obviously, we don't want to be living in a society like that. And we probably don't want our schools to be fostering a situation in young children and in youth that they will have to live in a society where everybody carries a weapon on his own in order to solve dispute or compromise or other kinds of issues. But it seems like we are slowly moving in that direction. And I think unless we look at really the whole issue of weapon use and how do we educate so that people know how to respond to each other, solve conflict, reduce victimization without using weapons uh, in a democratic, fair way, there's not zero tolerance, is not exclusionary, uh, we run the risk of really turning our schools into more prison-like or uh, harsh settings uh, that could have very long-term impacts on our students. And when you talk about weapons in schools, um, you mean things like knives and other um, bats and bricks and other things. And you talk about how that can affect uh, students' perceptions of the school and perceptions of their peers. When we think about weapons in school as a broad category, what are the kinds of effects that we should be concerned about? Uh, that's a real great question, Jeff. Um, look, uh, I think for us as researchers, it's quite surprising uh, how little data there is internationally on knives in schools or clubs or any other kind of weapons. Um, there's very, very little data or research looking at the effects of what it means to be threatened, uh, either by a gun or knife or club. Uh, like I said earlier, there was very little work on what it means to know or to see or to hear 
of either a gun or a knife or weapon. Uh, most of the research on weapons is really around guns, and it's not even about carrying a gun on school grounds. It's it's really more about the shootings and mass shootings. That's really where the vast majority of the efforts and funding has gone. Uh, and again, if you look at the response, we're talking about billions of dollars uh, being spent, and some of these have turned into cottage industries to uh, actually prevent shooters. And that includes all these drills that kids are going through that we really, up until now, do not really have good data as well on how that's affected kids across uh, our entire country who have gone now with years of these shooter drills. Uh, and, you know, we have a sense now looking at the pupil and some of the other they even just going through these drills and the idea and hearing about it on t- TV that there might be a shooter. Most adolescents in some of the more recent surveys that have come out have said that actually that's one of their highest concerns is that a shooter is going to come into their school and shoot them. So if you add that on with all the drills, I mean, that's really changes the reaction over time for youth in our society to the point where we're at now, where most of them think it's actually the most scary and pending things that might happen when in fact it's a very rare event. Uh, I have a dear colleague uh, Dewey Cornell from University of Virginia who always compares deaths in other contexts including restaurants and supermarkets and other community contexts and schools are much lower compared to everybody else. Now having said all that uh, we really don't know as well what it means just to have, you know, not killing, just having these effects. But, you know, the base rates on some of these things are low. So we have to understand theoretically or guess what, what this might mean to the school as a whole, because a school is a very kind of ripple effect type of place. So again, if you look at California and you uh, use the data that we have in the brief, which is 2013, uh, 4% of kids say that they carried a gun to school. Uh, which you might say that's a really low base rate and, you know, that's uh, 96% didn't bring a gun to school. And again, 8% said they brought a knife or a club, right? That's also seems low. 92% didn't. You know, the vast majority of kids are not bringing weapons to school. Some of them may come out and say they were uh, threatened or injured with a gun. Now, now that's more serious. Uh, and in, in our sample, that's around 7% of kids uh, and and this is, remember, high school kids in California, mainly in ninth and 11th grades. But it is quite shocking to know that a quarter of kids, 24% California, say that they either saw a gun, knife, or other weapon in school. What that means is the kids know about it, they see it, they hear about it, and we don't either do anything about it. Uh, we don't pay attention to them when they say it. We don't bring it back to the school level and say, well, tell us about it. Uh, they are kind of the canary in the mine that know about things that the adults don't. But then again, like you're alluding, how does that affect them when they go into their AP math class or their uh, science class? Uh, how does it affect them in terms of their belongingness to their school or what it means that society would put them in such a place? So, you know, uh, I, I think that last statistic is very, very telling. I think when you don't just look at the base rates and you look at the actual numbers, so just for California, again, this is not uh, building a space shuttle to Mars. These are approximations. But the same numbers that I just told you, these low base rates, 
that that four percent could amount to around seventy five thousand to a hundred thousand guns brought to school, depending on you know your confidence intervals and your ratios that you look at. It could mean that there's up to two hundred thousand knives or clubs brought to school grounds by kids. Uh, it could mean that there's a hundred and seventy five thousand students threatened by weapons on school grounds. And again, if that last statistic is extrapolated to the high school students in our state then that's 625,000 who saw a weapon on school grounds that year. So those numbers are not negligible, even though the base rates are really low. And again, what does that say with the rumor mongering, with people talking about it, and with the whole climate of going to school, whether you even want to bring a gun yourself afterwards to school? So we sense that that probably has a big impact, uh, but we need more research on that. And we need more policy that's non-punitive, that, that's educational, and that actually uh, helps support schools, educate, and reduce the number of violence. Now, that's at the individual student level. But at the school level, uh, what our policy brief actually looked at was uh, not just the number of kids. We had about 500,000 kids in that sample. Uh, but we also had 1,849 schools. And... There, the story is that it, it's not just about targeting specific kids the way most of our literature and policy thinks about in terms of expulsion and suspension, which we are not in favor of. We really think the school needs to be educating about these issues. Uh, there you see a slightly different picture. Uh, there you see about 88.6% of the schools in the state have over 15% of the students saying that they saw somebody carry a weapon on school grounds. The remainder, uh, 9.8, have seen between 8 and 15%. So so that means that you have close to 100% of schools, for sure 90% of schools, that have a significant proportion of students in their schools that had seen weapons being brought on school grounds. Now, just so the listeners understand, we are reporting about one wave of data, but the state collects this uh, every other year, half the state. And when you combine two years, you get the entire state. These patterns are consistent over decades. They go a little bit up, they go a little bit down. But the issue of seeing weapons in school at such high rates is consistent. It's consistent in the most recent round, 2017, and going back earlier. So these patterns are not just aberrant or just happening out of nowhere. Likewise, you could see the number of schools that have over 15% of their students saying that they were threatened with interview. That's 15% of the kids said they were threatened. You have 7% of schools saying that. But you have 33% of schools in California that have between 8 and 15% of the kids saying they were threatened with a weapon. So just if you target those two levels, which would be around 40% of schools, that's a lot of kids that, are, that have been reporting being threatened by weapons at their high school. And you could go the same kind of public health approach where instead of targeting kids, you look at schools and you think of what kind of community supports what kind of education programs would the staff, teachers, parents, uh, others in the community need to actually educate? Uh, and again, this is not Second Amendment. You don't get entangled with uh, Second Amendment, pro guns, not guns, NRA, not NRA. This is just 
everybody agrees that kids should not be carrying weapons in schools, even if you're in favor of teachers carrying weapons. So I think this data uh, is really helpful in that regard. And I really like how you're framing it as beyond just guns, both because that is an important issue, but also it does help move people away from questions about Second Amendment and the right to bear arms and other things that can kind of derail the conversation. And your data showing that um, the prevalence of weapon-related behavior is far greater than what most people would suspect at the school level, I think is a really powerful way to bring home that message that this is an issue we really need to talk about. I think a lot of parents and community members and educators might think that the students in their school don't see people carrying weapons, when in fact what your data suggests is it's far more likely than most people would think, and therefore it is an issue that we need to discuss as a community and a society. Yeah, I, I agree fully with that. I do think we need to discuss it. I think what's really interesting is, again, for if you look at the state of California, for example, this data is collected at the state level, but it's almost a census of uh, a population sample of all 7th, 9th, uh, and uh, 11th graders. Uh, if you look at the two years, as I spoke about earlier, uh, that data is not just for the state level or for epidemiological reasons, like we looked at the state policy. They actually have that data at the school site level. So when you actually bring that data back to the math teacher, to the uh, a reading teacher, to the history teacher, and they're aware uh, that kids are reporting uh, these various different kinds of uh, either bringing weapons or being threatened by weapons or seeing a weapon, they could actually understand uh, what maybe some of the fear that the kids are going through. They could actually uh, work with community organizations or with parents to see if they could do things in a different way uh, to make kids trust them better, uh, particularly if they know that other kids have weapons. Now, I haven't talked about it here, but that same state data shows that about one in five students have serious suicidal ideation, some of them with a plan, some of them have already been in hospitals, and there's sub-surveys that actually ask those questions as well. When you combine the issue of lethal weapons and suicidal ideation, and you're asking that in a state-level survey, and you could bring that back to the school level, it's not an abstract national database. This is the voice of the students, and you could actually, because they're anonymous, bring it back, have focus groups, have discussions, speak with superintendents, board members. That's not done very often. It's done sometimes, but not done very often. And I think when students see that adults and other people are actually using their voice, using their solutions, listening, because think about it, they're sitting and filling this out. It's a state-level survey that they're filling out every other year. How cynical is it that it's not being used at the state level, not being used at the regional or at the local level? I think students, after they see that adults use it, take it more seriously and will be more apt to participate and to work with the adults and the organizations if they see that what they say and what they do actually has meaning. It is a problem you could see after Parkland as well that here you have the most empowered groups of kids that we have seen in decades uh, actually go out and create this March on Washington. I was there. I testified with one of the survivors at a congressional briefing. But even their own school uh, has been hardened to such an extent that they have a national voice 
but they don't have a local voice. There's still SWAT teams, there's still dogs, uh, see-through backpacks, and uh, the the idea that relationships could actually prevent the usage of weapons or the threatening of weapons and those and that uh, situations of welcoming and care and support and resources could help that is still foreign in many different places. Uh, now, when we think of communities and how communities where we'd want to buy a house or real estate, you know, that if, if you walked in to want to buy a house in a neighborhood where you saw people with, uh, you know, submachine guns and tanks and police cars everywhere, uh, you might not look at that neighborhood and say, well, you know, that makes me feel more safe now uh, that I see this in every corner. What what you might feel more safe in, and people understand these kinds of analogies, is when you go out and you see a neighborhood of people working in their gardens, speaking to each other, uh, playing with their dogs, relationships, uh, uh, things are taken care of, they grow. I mean, in general, that's where people would prefer to buy houses. And in fact, we see that in real estate prices. It's not just an abstract, subjective thing. And real estate agents know that really well, That especially. But why would we think differently about a community or about neighborhoods than we do about schools? Uh, having those kinds of tight relationships, supportive, caring, uh, not only does the research support that and the evidence-based programs support that, but that's intuitively uh, what we want in a democratic society. Uh, we want uh, people to learn to interact, to care, uh, to support each other through their strength of their relationships. And that, in fact, is what the school uh, should be creating. That is really powerful. And that it strikes me that you're revealing that when we ask questions and don't act upon the data, we are sending a message to the students, not a very good one, um, that can in some ways compound the issue, will certainly not help the issue, um, particularly when it comes to things like weapons in schools and gangs, et cetera. So your um, public health approach not only is comprehensive, but what I'm hearing is it's it's important to communicate to the students that they're being heard and that they are cared for and their views are cared for and that they're included in a comprehensive approach to the issue. Yes, uh, Jeff, I agree with that uh, fully. Uh, in fact, we, we had an intervention project in Southern California with about 145 uh, schools and eight school districts about 120,000 kids in the study where we actually took these student voice, including weapons, but also on climate, uh, substance use, a variety of different issues, suicide. And we actually fed it back to the principals, parents, uh, students, administrators. So they constructed plans and monitored their use of resources from the community, use of resources in the district, and actually did not look at that data as data. They looked at it as collective student voice, brought it back to focus groups, again, with administrators, teachers, very often kids and parents, and then looked at the resources in those community based on those needs and addressed them. Now, each school ended up being a little bit different. It wasn't an evidence-based program. And that sense, very data-driven, very student-led. But in the same community, you might have the very similar risk factors. And one school actually has succeeded in pulling it together, based on, and the other one hasn't. And you could start communicating even between the various different schools. But even with 145 schools in eight school districts, uh, you know, you can 
impact issues such as weapon caring, because sometimes people split off the soft approach as kind of more mushy and caring, but what's that going to do with guns and gangs? And again, the idea that the strength of the relationships within the schools and the quality of the resources within the district or the school or the community that's brought in around the student and teacher voice actually does impact serious things is is not often talked about. So I think you're 100% correct. So in our seven-year study, and we, again, had over 100,000 students in this, just by doing these kinds of uh, SEL, climate, community resources, using the student voice in the center, we're able to get a 55% reduction in gun carrying on school grounds, uh, 37.5% reduction in knives, guns, clubs, uh, and other kind of injury threats of a weapon on school grounds, a 40% reduction in seeing a weapon on school grounds. And the last one is a little bit surprising, but makes sense. We had a 44% reduction in gang affiliation and participation. And so, again, this is not about expulsion, suspension, school-to-prison pipeline. This is about using the voices and relationships and taking what students say seriously and bringing it back to the local setting and doing that in and out. Now, we've done this in Israel for decades, and it works pretty well, and in Chile, other places in the world. Uh, But it's a very different way of thinking than a more top-down, evidence-based program that just has to be implemented uh, in different ways, uh, the way we think about it here. So in some ways, we're focusing so much of our attention on the extreme examples that we are ignoring a far more pervasive epidemiological view that would show us that, in fact, there are a number of things happening in more schools than we would suspect that create conditions that make those extreme events more likely. And that what it sounds like what you found in your research, qualitative and quantitative, is that it really does require a public health approach to school climates, to the kind of messages that we're sending students um, to really create environments where those, both the extreme and the still very serious, but maybe not quite as extreme events are less likely to occur. You want to create an environment where students feel heard and cared for um, and caring for each other. And it sounds like that approach is antithetical to some of the recent discussions about hardening schools and arming teachers. That's correct. I've been uh, going around the country giving a variety of different talks around the country in different states. I have to say that I I, I feel very much uh, that I'm from the coast and from Los Angeles because uh, when you go to different states, people feel very uh, strongly about this issue of firearms and particularly arming teachers or having guns in schools. And it's not always what those in New York and California think. It's it's different. Many states have hunting cultures and uh, very strong gun cultures, and they feel that if teachers and principals and others are well-trained, that this could actually be a solution. Uh, I think it does ignore the decades in international research that really shows the higher rates of accidental death, death by uh, by passion crimes, when people get into arguments, having more weapons around actually, we have pretty strong data internationally suggesting that this actually does cause more injury, death, fear amongst places and situations that have an abundance of that. And a school, I'm just very worried that we're going to have to wait to a situation if places do arm teachers 
to be in those situations where you hear that friendly fire or accidents or uh, guns went off uh, inappropriately or uh, in arguments people were fearful and wrong people were shot. Uh, All sorts of things like that might happen. I hope they don't. But the more guns you get into the hands of people who may not be as well trained as professionals, um, that could happen. And we all know that based on the research. The other issue that is more prevalent that I see is a lot of legislatures are moving towards school resource officers and actually maybe training them to learn SEL and uh, social-emotional techniques and school climate methods so that they're a little bit softer, but they still have weapons. Uh, We do know that so far that has not really always helped in every of these mass shooting situations. And we do have to wonder what it means when every school in America has a police officer or a set of police officers or school resource officers and teachers with guns. I mean, getting back to my original comment of the school actually should or does reflect the kind of society, not that we only live in, but that we want to create. And we may have generations of students living in buildings that look like fortresses with teachers that are armed and potentially threatening, waiting for a threat, going through drills of a potential shooter, and with police officers who, at least the recent research that we could see, has increased the school-to-prison pipeline uh, and ballooned it in some places, and just the perception that they need to be policed. Again, this may be a situation that some people think is needed in some schools, but unfortunately I'm seeing it all over the country in almost all schools, in rural areas, places that have never really had a violence problem or a threat uh, because of this image that potentially they themselves might be victims of this mass school shooter. Every school feels the need or the liability to do it. And I see school boards, superintendents, just because of the fear of that and the perception, really arming our schools and hardening them in ways that our research has shown is not helpful psychologically or socially or politically in the long run, mainly for liability reasons and because of massive uh, fear from parents and teachers in the community. I worry about the long-term effects of what this does to the children in our society. That's really powerful. So you're what I'm hearing is that this kind of clenched fist mentality that we are creating in schools is not just going to create schools that are less safe, that are more dangerous, that are um, more prone to weapons and violence, but it sounds like you're suggesting that those students will then graduate and grow into adults who also assume that the world around them is similar and that the responses to that world should be similar in terms of you know, weapons and violence begetting violence. It sounds like you think that the kind of climate that we communicate to students in schools could eventually permeate the entire society in ways we don't anticipate. Yes, I think, in fact, it has already permeated society in a way that we have not anticipated. And I think perhaps that train has already left the station and there's not much we could do about it. And there's some colleagues like mine, Dorothy Espelage, who are working actually to train uh, school resource officers to actually be more caring and social emotional, I guess more like social workers. But I do wonder in the larger kind of view of things, is anybody sitting and saying what kinds of 
schools do we want to create a better society? Uh, although it is important to answer the question what to do when a shooter comes in, that should not determine everything, including the way it's built, if it looks like a prison, and they feel like they're in a prison because of the surveillance, that they have no voice. I absolutely feel that this could have very long-term effects on how when these children grow up, how they feel. It may go in the opposite direction, by the way, too. They may reject this at all as, as being too authoritarian and too law enforcement oriented. But that is, in fact, the direction uh, that we're going. I wish that the researchers who have this abundance of data right now that we've collected over decades to show what is healthy, what is good for human development, what is good for creating a healthy society, and for children growing up in the future, had a greater voice in the legislatures and in the media, because I think we have a lot to offer. And that's why I'm so excited about this podcast and that APA is putting this out to policymakers, because I think our voice has been uh, quieter than it should be. So what can scholars and educators do to amplify those voices and to affect policy? I think scholars could do quite a bit if they join forces together. Uh, and again, working through APA, ARA, uh, I work through NASW and Society for Social Work Research and through the National Academies, uh, the American Academy of Social Work, National Academy of Education. Uh, we have to believe that that is our role, is actually educating the public and policymakers to actually use evidence-based science-related information on these pressing wicked problems that our society is facing. And I think for our more younger scholars, I think many of them that I'm hearing and I'm mentoring and working with actually are entering the field for those kinds of reasons. And I don't think it's a, it's a big sell uh, for them to actually do really good research, uh, rigorous, qualitative, quantitative, mixed method, and then to figure out ways to go to the media, the public, politicians, and influence society so their work actually changes the lives of people. It also makes an impact on the literature in the long run, but could actually make pain and suffering less or uh, well-being and thriving more for uh, other kids that they'll never meet or they never even know that for certain some of those people will may never read their articles. So I, I, I would just urge particularly researchers who are interested, first of all, it, it is scary, but don't be afraid, go out there, give it a, a shot, because it's very important to not have this just sit in a journal. Alliances with journalists in terms of getting the word out, learning how to write op-eds, uh, and actually learning how to testify and to convey ideas to those policymakers. And when I'm saying policymaker, it doesn't have to be a congressional briefing. It doesn't have to be a White House conference. It could be to the local school board or to the superintendent. And that could be just as important, helping them interpret data, helping them actually analyze and work with youth to do focus groups on their local data, to come up with solutions and resources in their area, could be vital. Uh, we actually write about that in our two other sister practice books that uh, with this brief, we not only wrote the scientific version that came out a year before, we wrote one on welcoming schools and kind of the positive schools that are remarkable that we could learn from that kind of solve these problems on their own 
own. And we're trying to figure out how they do that and in welcoming particularly kids in transition. And the whole mapping and monitoring that we developed in Israel and then applied in Southern California and Chile and other countries. So those are more practice-oriented books that, that teachers, principals, psychologists, social workers, counselors could use. And I think that there's a lot you could do at the local without thinking grand only at the national. But there is also, if you want to work at the national or international level, there are many opportunities by joining your professional organizations and aligning with like-minded professionals. You've done such a nice job of painting a picture where the public discourse has been about these extreme events, mass shootings, and you've used multiple and mixed methods, quantitative, qualitative, otherwise, to illustrate that that's not quite the right question, that the issue is is different, and therefore the response needs to be different, much more systematic, much more comprehensive, uh, multimodal across various levels of schooling and various levels of society. Um, You've really done a, a wonderful job of illustrating how your research is informing uh, how society should be thinking about these issues and how policymakers should be thinking about these issues as well. And so I really thank you for that. And I, I wanted to pivot for just a second and ask whether you have any advice or lessons learned for other scholars who are interested in taking their research and trying to translate it or package it or move it towards a more policy-oriented direction. Do you have any lessons for us that we could learn? Yeah, I think I think actually what we're doing right now uh, with this podcast and with the policy brief is part of that. I think uh, the scholars can become part of their professional organizations and APA Division 15 was thinking, what can we do to actually have a greater policy impact? That was the question. And by organizing again and by coming up with a, a policy brief, which is something almost every researcher could do on their research and doing this podcast and then partnering with the other mechanisms in APA, we'll be able to send this out broadly. Now, any researcher in Division 15 could do this. And I would hope ARA, they've already started that, and other organizations in social work will start using their organizations in such a fashion. But remember, you can also do this at your university level. And when I started, there was kind of this was something you did on the side. And I think more and more universities are recognizing that uh, they want research that also has a real uh, world impact. They value that. Uh, I was warned against it when I was a junior professor that, yeah, that's really important and great, but, but make sure you do kind of the hardcore stuff first and do this other stuff on the side and that's added value. I'm not quite sure in today's society that that's true. I think the real world impact and policy is just as important to university administrators, even at the top tier one universities. So I would urge particularly the younger scholars to really work with those who have done it, get mentored on it, partner up, but also work through the professional organization, just exactly like we're doing right now. And even if there's those in Division 15 or in APA that are thinking of wanting to do this. If you have those set mechanisms to go, it makes it a lot easier so you don't have to do it on your own. Again, you may want to do this in your department or in your university level. And I I would strongly urge people to start working that not as a separate issue of scholarship, but as an extension. And actually, you could think of it in some ways as an intervention in and of itself. That's great. And, you know, it's important for us to never forget that the 
the emphasis in science is rigor and evidence, whether it's qualitative, quantitative, whatever the case may be. It's not how many publications you have or what journal they're published in. It's about the rigor and the evidence and the work. And I thought you did a really nice job of describing how that can lead to change in the world, and that should count as rigor and evidence and important work. So thank you for that. Um, last thing, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the next steps for you and your research and policy work? You mentioned your book, um, uh, which I believe is entitled Bullying, School Violence, and Climate in Evolving Context, Culture, Organization, and Time. Um, but what else is next for you in your work? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we're very proud of uh, both Rami Benbenishti and I. Uh, we're both co-authors on this APA brief, and also this comes from a chapter, chapter five from our book. Uh, this is a labor of love where we combine data from California and from Israel and Chile and other places in the world to look at common patterns between and within cultures and different ways you could look at school safety issues that haven't been researched or thought of right now that would be relevant to pause. And this weapons chapter is just one example, but we look at a variety of other types of violence and also well-being and optimal school settings. Just as a side, as I mentioned, we have two other practice books that I'm very proud of. And we just won the School Social Worker Association of American Award for Best Book of the Year. And we were very thrilled about that since those are practice books and a practice organization uh, said they were useful. So it's not just about dissemination to policymakers. It's about also translation to people working in the field so they could take the scientific data and the practical and actually use it on a day-to-day -day basis. So those are kind of three sister books together. And having said that, I, I think for the next 10 years of my career, uh, and I'm, I've been very blessed to have many opportunities. I've been here at 17 years at USC and had wonderful opportunities by the university. Ten years earlier, I was at Michigan and learned so much there and had great colleagues. Uh, I will be transitioning to UCLA this July, and I'm hoping to build a rather large uh, international school safety and well-being center. Um, what I've noticed over the years is that kind of the international work is not really been the focus of research and practice in the school safety uh, kind of mindset in the United States. We've been very U.S. oriented, although we have in the bullying literature looked at Europe and Australia and New Zealand and uh, parts of uh, Japan and ref referenced them. On the whole, though, most of our research is very uh, North America centered. However, when I travel, South America is extremely active in the area of school safety and on all the various different kinds of violence and bullying. Uh, Europe has a lot of activity going on, uh, parts of Asia. And then there are parts of the world that are almost not researched or researched very little. Parts of Africa, parts of Asia. Uh, we need a lot more information about what's happening internationally for a lot of reasons. One is we could see what's common between various different schools. And surprisingly, there's a lot of things common between various different cultures and within cultures that we don't spend a lot of time talking about. We could also see what's not common, what's different, what's related to culture and poverty, what can we tease out between modernity or patriarchy 
And uh, we see that in some of the data that we do have. But I would love to create this center since it's not really funded by our national uh, institutes that bring really all the countries together and to do research and methods think tanks. So we could do qualitative and quantitative mixed method studies and brainstorming on, on what, what are the issues facing safety in various different places of the world. Uh, what we've also seen is what we've researched these theoretically atypical schools that we've done some initial research on. And these are schools that probably shouldn't be functioning because of all the risk factors and all the difficulties, either because of war or poverty, but they're actually thriving. <laughs> and when you go into them and you do qualitative work or quantitative work, you see they have very similar components in various different cultures. And I think that would be a very interesting area to pursue uh, over the next 10 years that I'm hoping uh, the new center at UCLA, once we get it established, could take a look at. And finally, I, th I think there are gaps. I mean, we forget, we take for granted sometimes in the Western world that education is kind of uniform, and it's really not. It's different and uneven across the world. I would say one of the biggest gaps and areas that I see is education for girls. And uh, the UN report recently put out on school violence around the world highlighted that. It's very important. Some, in many countries, girls aren't even expected to be educated beyond a certain age or not at all, or only religious education, or sometimes schools are actually uh, set up to create ideology that's hateful to other groups and causes more violence. And these kinds of issues should be discussed because uh, school safety is not just things that happen in the 50 states in America. They happen around the world, and we could actually learn quite a bit from other countries in terms of things that work, and we also will learn more about, again, what is common and not common in areas of school uh, safety. So I'm really looking forward to this next phase where we could build and learn more theoretically, empirically, from a measurement perspective about culture, but also, uh, ultimately, to reduce pain and suffering would be my goal for millions of kids around the world in countries who haven't yet even embarked on asking these questions and uh, seeing if we could both learn and expand our knowledge so that more, more kids could be educated in safe environments. Well, that sounds fantastic. Congratulations on all your success and uh, what sounds like a really exciting and important future direction for you and your research. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me and thank you so much for all of your work. It's vitally important to who we are as a society and um, it's just been a pleasure talking to you and learning more about what you do. And this policy brief is a real contribution both to the field and to society. So thank you. I'd like to thank you, Jeff, for this opportunity to have this interview. It's been my honor uh, to have this conversation with you. I also want to thank APA and Division 15 for creating this opportunity of a policy brief. And hopefully this is the first of many and others will follow on of diverse sets of issues that will start impacting uh, policy in our world so that people could see the direct value of the science that's being done at APA and in the social sciences in general. And this is just a, again, tremendous opportunity and honor for me. Thank you. Well, and thank you for all that you have done. Uh, it's been a wonderful time.